And I got tremendous applause for it. I thought, this is great. You just start this high in Munchkin Land and just work your all the way. You'll get applause every time. The ego massage will just be incomparable every time you take a solo. It's all ego. It's all, that's all it is. It all comes down to that. So for the next two years, I just, every solo started up there. No, I'm kidding. And it's the dog days of summer edition of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. This is your host, Keith Billick. Thanks everyone for joining me. Hope you're all hanging in there. I'm really excited to have you here this episode with one of my more anticipated guests, even though he's a, obviously a raging egomaniac, if you couldn't tell by that intro clip. And of course, I'm being sarcastic, as was he. But um, something I'm not sarcastic about, though, is taking a moment to thank the Patreon supporters of this episode. And I'm extremely fortunate that today I have three very lovely Patreon sponsors of the episode to thank the first of which his name is mark schuster and he had lots of kind words for the show that i'm running so thank you mark for those he's been playing banjo for a few years and he says it really changed the course of his life and mark i can tell you that i i can completely relate and i bet a lot of the listeners can also relate to the positive impact that playing the banjo has had in their life hopefully it's mostly positive i assume that's what you meant i hope it's nothing more uh (laughs) more depressing than that uh the next supporter this is hilarious the next supporter is named dj shook and as you can tell i solicit a little bit of information from each of these supporters to share with you and dj chose this opportunity to to apologize that when he was back in school i assume he means college but i guess i don't know for sure his friend burnt him a CD copy of a Hot Tomedi album. And if that doesn't mean anything to any of you, let me explain. Hot Tomedi is a band that I was in darn near 20 years ago, and we put out a CD. Um, if, if any of you have it, I'm so sorry that it was recorded when I had probably been playing for about a year and a half. So my playing, I hope, has come a long way since then. But at any rate, DJ got a burned copy of, of a CD from a band that I used to be in almost 20 years ago, and he's taking this opportunity to apologize for for accepting this bootleg copy, and he views supporting me on Patreon as kind of his owing up to that terrible, terrible crime that he committed back then of, of the music piracy. So DJ, let me take this opportunity to officially forgive you. You can have a clean conscience about the Hot Tomedi album. In fact, if you really, really want to, I might even have a couple shrink-wrapped Hot Tomedi CDs. I could give you like a factory one. So, I don't know. If you, if you run into me somewhere, hit me up and maybe I'll have a Hot Tomedi CD on me. At any rate, thank you, DJ, for supporting the show. It means a lot. Uh, the last supporter of today's show is Kirsten Cole, and she lives in New York City, been a long-time listener. She's been playing for three and a half years, and she takes lesson with Hillary Hawk. So Kirsten wanted to give a shout-out to Hillary, and uh, perhaps many of you have already seen this. Hillary is on the cover of the brand-new episode, or uh, not episode, issue of Banjo Newsletter. So I'm sure Hillary should be very proud of herself. I'm sure Kirsten is very proud as well. But at any rate, Kirsten, thank you so much for supporting the show For the rest of you listeners out there, if you find the show enjoyable and valuable in some way, 
please consider being a Patreon supporter. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast, and you'll learn how to make a small monthly contribution that goes directly to the production of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I'm a one-man operation, so I every little bit does make a difference, and I thank all of you for doing that. If Patreon isn't really your thing, the other ways to support the show is to subscribe and rate and review on whatever platform you're using, whether it's iTunes or, or you know, all the ones. Uh, so please do that. That always, that always helps for me to get some feedback and some five-star ratings out there. You can share it around on social media. You can spread the word to all your friends, to your fellow banjo players. All of that is real good, and I'm all about the grassroots spreading the word about the show. So thanks for all of those efforts that anyone out there is doing. If you'd like to contact the show for any reason, you can email me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com, and you can feel free to write me with any of your questions, comments, concerns, or if you have a deep, dark secret about the Hot Tomatoes CD that you accepted a long time ago that you've never been able to to really come to terms with the guilt that you're feeling about it. I'm I'm here for you. Consider it your own little confession booth. Picky fingers banjo podcast at gmail.com. Love hearing from all you. So I just mentioned about Hillary Hawk being on the cover of Banjo Newsletter. I can't believe I forgot to mention these last ep- this last episode or two that I was actually on the cover of a magazine too um, as part of an interview feature. I know you're all thinking that it was probably GQ or something like that. No, it was actually BMG Magazine, which stands for Banjo Mandolin Guitar Magazine. And I was interviewed by David Cotton, who's the editor over there at the magazine. So thanks a lot, David, for doing that. And I'm, I'm really flattered that you tracked me down. Anybody who's interested in checking that out, go to cliffordessex.net. That's C-L-I-F-F-O-R-D-E-S-S-E-X. .net, and that's where you can find BMG Magazine. And the one I'm involved with is the Summer 2019, which is the current issue of that. So yeah, check it out. So this is the part where I tell you that today's guest needs no introduction, and then I will continue on to, to introduce him anyway. It's Tony Trishka, and he's been around the scene for decades now and has been really an undescribable influence in the banjo world. And I say undescribable because... As soon as you decide that he is just this avant-garde, creative banjo guy, kind of a trailblazer, which he most certainly is, you'll be able to tell from the interview that he has just as much a respect for the deep traditions of the banjo as he does for doing the weirder stuff, as he puts it. He does that. He's also one of the more prominent teachers. He, he runs his own Tony Trishka School of Banjo, and he famously was Bela Fleck's teacher for quite some time. So, so he has at least a bit of responsibility for unleashing Bela Fleck onto the universe, which if that was all he did, he'd be a legend. But he's done so much more than that, and I can't wait for you to hear all about it. He's one of my favorites. So put your hands together for, well, put your hands together unless you're driving or if you're at your desk at work and you'll get fired if you start clapping in the middle of a meeting or something. But other than that, put your hands together for Tony Trishka.
Well, I guess first I should show off. I'm, uh, oh. I'm representing your wear. I, wow. I, was, I was the proud winner of your um, caption contest. Oh, so, great. So I got these in the mail from you. <laughs> And are you are you sporting some banjos? No, no. Oh, okay. Because those looked similar. Mike Sumner was rocking a pretty, pretty impressive pair of uh, of socks too yesterday. Banjo oriented yeah, ones. It's all but, about the socks. Yeah, it really it's is. It's all about the socks. <laughs> oh, I'm honored that you would wear those. Yeah, thank you. No, I was, I was only too proud to <laughs> to receive them, and I even made sure not to wear them out in between when I when I received them and now. Well, uh, hopefully they them. can withstand multiple washings. Mine have stood up pretty well, all things considered. Excellent. Yeah. So, yeah, first of all, let's let's start with what I was just mentioning. I was really inspired to do this by reading Masters of the Five-String Banjo, and it's such a valuable resource. How did you approach getting all this information out of them? Well, we decided to write this book. Uh, Pete and I decided to do this project, which we thought, well, it won't take that long. Just do some interviews and... <laughs> And then it took like three years or something. Again, not constant toil, but uh, we did that. And the hardest thing was deciding who should be in the book. And we ended up putting ourselves in the book, which was kind of obnoxious. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in fact, I was even against it at the time. And I don't want to throw Pete under the bus, but he said, oh, no, we, you know, we're out there doing it and in major bands. And yeah. so we should include ourselves. But then, and at that point, Eddie Adcock was not on the scene that much. Bill Emerson was not on the scene. He was playing with the Navy band, I think, at that time. He wasn't really on the scene and doing recordings. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, five years later, Eddie was back doing a lot of stuff, and Bill Emerson was back doing a lot of stuff, uh, just for two for instances. And then Pat Cloud, who had been living in obscurity somewhat, you know, not really being out there, had put, an a- put out an album just as we were starting to do this and was, you know, kind of on the scene. So we included him. Uh-huh. And then shortly after the book came out, he just sort of kind of got off the scene again. I mean, he's still an amazing player. I'm just saying in terms of we're trying to deal with people that were prominent in on hi- the scene. In hindsight, there were maybe a couple couple oversights or a couple yeah. uh, so decisions it, that, that that you wouldn't have made the same way. Yeah, yeah. so it's, I'm, I'm just sort of putting the negative spin on it. But, I mean, I still think, you know, it's a valuable thing. And we got to have all these interviews down, and then Pete did this amazing chart of the people that were not major on the scene at that point. Like, Alison Brown wasn't who she is today at that point. But I think he interviewed her, and just, you know, what string gauges do you use? How do you hold your picks? Whatever. She's part of that big spreadsheet section. Yeah, because Pete has a doctor of sociology, and he is good at all that data kind of stuff. And so he created that chart. And then we both interviewed Bill Monroe at different times, and so we got that on there. Okay. So it's, you know, it's really tough trying to, who am I going to include? Who am I going to exclude? So, but in the end, there's a lot of good information there, at least as of 1987 or whenever that. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a treasure trove for sure. And, and I consider myself fortunate that I'm, I'm not limited by temporal relevance or page numbers or anything like that. I can uh, hopefully snag as many of, of of you as possible and yeah and just that's a great thing about keep keep turning sort of thing yeah yeah exactly you can do it infinitely well a lot of people probably know a fair bit about you if they've followed your career but why don't you give us a brief history of how you discovered the banjo and and what drew you to it and your early influences in learning well i just was uh channel surfing while i was doing something and uh i like watching westerns and and Turner Classic Movies. I think it was Turner Classic Movies. And 
I just turned on the television while I was making the bed or whatever, and, and there's Kirk Douglas in a Western. I, went, I love Kirk Douglas in a Western. And there's a movie called The Man Without a Star, or Man Without a Star, and it was this, I remember very specifically seeing that movie when I was a kid at the drive-in. My parents took me, and there was this oh, Western. Cool. <laughs> and in it, as I'm watching, he's playing the banjo. He's playing a five-string banjo, but the, you're hearing a four-string banjo. So obviously some studio musician was that, but there's Kirk. And you probably didn't realize it at the time or anything I, like I don't that. even remember seeing him with a banjo, but I started thinking. I wonder I saw I saw this thing that's with a round white head, and it's really cool. Okay. And Kirk Douglas is playing it, and I was wondering if that – I'm, I'm stretching here. It probably didn't, but you yeah, know, yeah. It, it might have planted <laughs> something. But uh, growing up, my, my parents were very left-wing, and, uh, and uh, they were – my. My mother went to school at Toshi, the woman who became Toshi Seeger, Pete Seeger's wife. Oh, interesting. Uh, in Greenwich Village, this very lefty kind of uh, communist, as in Pete Seeger being a communist and yeah. Woody Guthrie being communist, that okay. sort of thing. Anyway, so I grew up hearing Pete Seeger uh, with the Almanac Singers and Solo, and they had a children's album of his that I listened to and listened to Lead Belly. So I had this folk thing, and I was hearing Pete Seeger's banjo, but even then it didn't really click. Until I heard the Kingston Trio, because I was really involved in the, listening to the, the folk scare of the early 60s with the Brothers Four and the Limelighters, and most importantly to me, the Kingston Trio, yeah. and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and those groups. And the very first album I ever owned, which I got for Christmas when I was 13 or something, was uh, the Kingston Trio at large, and there's a song on there called MTA, about this guy who rides forever underneath the streets of Boston. Charlie. He, Charlie. It, Charlie. Yeah, right, and right. they call it the train Charlie now in Boston after that song, actually, oh, early Charlie... Okay. Charlie tickets, you know, for, for tokens or whatever. Um, but anyway, there's a banjo solo on there that went like this. And these 16 notes made me play the banjo. Literally, it was all cool, but when I heard that... And it was Dave Gard is the banjo player who played yeah. that in the original Kingston Trio. And I heard those notes, and that was it. And I was already playing folk guitar. Mom, Dad, I need a banjo now. Nice. I didn't say it that way. But anyway, they got me a banjo for, for Christmas and a uh, long neck banjo because I wanted to have one like Dave Gard's like and, yeah. and, uh, and like Pete Seeger's. And then I said, where can I hear more of this? And someone said, listen to Earl Scruggs. And I went, oh, okay. And then... Started connecting the dots. Yeah, and then yeah. that's where I... Very so cool. When when did you start to identify? I mean, you're you're well known for being this experimental, unique, original force. When did you start noticing your own creativity or composing your own songs or more risky banjo behavior? I guess is what I'll say. Well, I can put an exact date on it, which was Labor Day of 1965. Huh. That weekend, I went to the very first bluegrass festival that there ever was. First three day festival. In Fincastle, Virginia, it was called the Roanoke Bluegrass Festival, and uh, Carlton Haney. It was Carlton Haney's. Yeah, he okay. put it together, and it was Bill Monroe and Reno and Smiley separate. They'd separated, but they had their separate bands there. The Stanley Brothers were there. Jimmy Martin was there. Mac Wiseman, Clyde Moody, on and on and on. It was like an amazing thing. We drove down from Syracuse, New York, just on the basis of one ad in Sing Out magazine, and, and there's Bill Monroe just walking around like a regular human being. Right. Anyway, there was a banjo contest there, and I entered it with, uh, I had our guitar player in the band I was playing with, the Down City Ramblers up in Syracuse, backed me up on it. And I did Nine Pound Hammer, and uh, the judges were Bill Emerson, 
Lamar Greer, who was playing with mm-hmm. uh, Bill, Bill was playing with Jimmy Martin at that point. Lamar Greer was playing with Bill Monroe and Ralph Stanley. So they're the judges. And you knew this going into it? Or, yeah, I knew this going into okay. it. And I was playing Nine Pound Hammer, and I did a something like. These fake. I found that, and I threw these fake Middle Eastern modes in. And there's some a friend of mine took a picture of Ralph Stanley, or the judges at that point, and Ralph's sort of like this. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was as I was playing. And, and, and for the listeners, Tony did kind of an imitation of that, what is the famous statue, is it called The Thinker? The Thinker, or something yeah. Like that, like, just yeah, with head his on the, hair, like, fist on the forehead. Like, what the heck? <laughs> um, I didn't win, needless to say. Larry oh. McNeely entered also as a wonderful banjo player, Larry sure. McNeely. Who, who was put, featured in the Masters of the Five String Masters of the Banjo, yeah. And he took this Marshall Brickman break from uh, New Dimensions and Banjo and Bluegrass with Marshall Brickman and, yeah. and um, uh, Eric Weisberg, which the solo was something like Shuck in the Corn. So, something like that. He didn't win. And the, this kid won who played Foggy Mountain Breakdown note for Note Like Earl and sounded really good. So that's yeah. one. But anyway, I guess so that all, was that's how those contests go. You're at the mercy of who are the judges? Know thy judges. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. So anyway, that was as early as that I knew I was, you know, I was messing around and doing some different things. And I wrote a few tunes right around that time, 65, 66. And Bill Keith was my big hero. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sent him a tape of me playing a few tunes that I'd written at that point. And he wrote back and was very generous spending some time with me in New York at one point and then just, you know, writing back with these songs that I sent to him. And he had the tape for a long time, I know, and then I finally asked him one time, hey, can I get a copy of that tape to see what I was doing in 1965 or 6? And he had lost it at that point. Okay. But I remember I wrote... How many years after was that? Oh, I don't know, 25 years, 30 years. It was a bunch of years later. Understandably, it would just get lost in the sauce. But there was a song called um, Theme from Godzilla that I'd written. Don't ask. But, uh, and it was, the A part was on. Uh, I just remember the A part was kind of. It was, it was something like that. Sure. And it was some B part, uh, which I can't remember. So that, that might have been the first tune I wrote. Okay. But at any rate, you were apparently undeterred by your your contest losing efforts. Yeah. Um, and what were you doing to try to spur on that creativity, or is it just something that comes naturally to you? Your it ear just, wants it, to hear different. It, it, yeah, I just heard different things. I mean, when, growing up, I was not in Rosie, Kentucky, where Bill Monroe grew up. Sure. I was uh, Syracuse, New York. My father was a physics professor, and my parents listened to. I mean, in addition to folk music with Pete Seeger and whatnot. Uh, you know, Broadway shows, classical music. Mm-hmm. We had the Rite of Spring in the house and Beethoven's Ninth. Yeah. And so I'm hearing that stuff. And I was really into folk music. And I, you know, would go to hear Bob Dylan in 1963 or Tom Paxton. And, you know, went to the Newport Folk Festivals in 63 and 64 and got to see Mississippi John Hurt and Skip James and these people that were had just been rediscovered and didn't yeah. have that much longer to live. I saw Doc Boggs, saw Whoa. Doc Watson when he came out for the first time uh, as a solo performer. Okay. Uh, and Bill Monroe and the Stanley Brothers and Clarence Ashley and, you know, just all these 
amazing people in one place at one time. Uh, so I had all that going on. And then the 60s came along, and I'm listening to the Beatles and Hendrix and mm-hmm. Van Dyke Parks and Brian Wilson's visionary things with the Beach Boys. And uh, Aaron Copeland is a big hero of mine. Uh, and Zappa. And you know, just all this stuff that was, you know, all these – like hearing the Beatles do Strawberry Fields for the first time, on the, hearing that on the radio. No one was playing music like that. That was just like this leap yeah. where Tomorrow Never Knows off Revolver. Like, What? And so all these boundaries were getting pushed, and so I was way into all that stuff, and it started translating into willing to push your own yeah boundaries. Yeah, yeah. And we heard the story like I got to see Bill Monroe's band in 1966 a lot with Pete Rowan, Richard Green, Lamar Greer, and Bill Son James on bass, and they were here were these young, cool, urban guys. Mm-hmm. Richard was from L.A. and Peter's from Boston, and and they, with deep respect for the roots of Bill's music, and knew his early stuff that he hadn't been playing in years, and they got back to doing that kind of music, and so we got to have dinner with Bill Monroe with that band in 1966, and uh, oh, got nice. to ride over to the show afterwards in the Bluegrass Bus, and he had baseball gloves up there because he used to have of a course, baseball yeah, team, yeah. and you know it was like <laughs> the coolest thing in the world. I was like in high school at the time, got to have dinner with Bill Monroe, and he sat in with our band on a couple of tunes and. Whoa! Uh, and then, and and How cool. after dinner, he said, "Would you like to play? Play? Have us play for you?" We were at our guitar player's parents' house in Rochester, uh-huh. New York, and we'd invited Bill over for dinner. Or our guitar player did, and he, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's like four of us in the band, and our guitar player's parents, six of us, and then the five bluegrass boys in suits and ties, taking requests for like twenty minutes. That's incredible. This close, I can't, I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. and can't you hear me calling? Okay, Stony Lonesome. Okay, crossing the Cumberlands. Whatever, on and on. And they did, they played for 20 minutes, and then we got to hear the show after that. So just being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, just starstruck or (coughs) awestruck at at any rate, yeah. And then we started hearing that Bill Monero was inventing this new music beyond bluegrass, like the next iteration. But we never had any confirmation of that. We had just this rumor that was going around around 1967 or 68, and uh, never materialized. We never heard more about it, but I asked Hmm. Pete Rowan about it. I don't know, 10 years ago or something, he said, what it was was uh, Bill wanted to do, that was the last thing on my mind by uh, Tom Paxton, I think. Okay. He was going to do some folk songs or something. Okay. So it was, it was nothing did, radical. I don't think he ever did it. I mean, yeah, yeah. It was just this, that's what Pete said it was, was nothing radical at all. But just Interesting. Sort of going off in a slightly different direction. So how were you actually learning at that point? Did you have a teacher? To start with, there's a gentleman named Hal Glatzer, G-L-A-T-Z-E-R. Uh, I had a banjo teacher named John Gaines, spelled J-O-N for what it's worth, mm-hmm. who was a folk singer in, in Syracuse where I grew up. And when I first wanted to play banjo, my parents found this guy who supposedly played banjo. Mm-hmm. And he was a folk singer, and he played some claw hammer, and he was showing me claw hammer, which is not what I wanted. But yeah, sure. but I sort of had my hand like a hard claw or something. I didn't really get it, and it's yeah. not what I wanted to do anyway. But through him, I got to meet Bob Dylan in 1963 So, because he knew Dylan in the village. So that was a whole other thing of being in the right place at the right time. But then I went to this hootenanny at Syracuse University, and this, these two guys were playing, including this guy, Hal Glatzer. He's playing Scruggs-style banjo. And I went, that's it. That's, yeah. That's and what I so I was kind of shy to go up to him, but I, I got his number and called him up and started taking lessons from him. And the very first lesson, he showed me Lonesome Row Blues, the way Eric Weisberg played it on this album, pretty close to it. <laughs> Thank you. 
so here are all these licks. The, the slide thing. That lick and all those Scruggs licks. And I was in his dorm room at Syracuse University learning in one lesson, all the doors opened up. It's like, oh, this yeah, is how you do this. There are all these licks. The... And it's now in my fingers. And I would go home for a week and ravenously learn it and come back and learn something else the next week. And, and so he opened all the doors and he knew melodic style. Mm-hmm. And he taught me Devil's Dream. So, you know, yeah. uh, all the doors were open in the single string style of Don Reno. So suddenly it was all on a platter. Here here it all is. You're devouring it. Yeah. Devouring it. And after a while, I just started learning stuff on my own and, you know, was sort of going from there. Then at the point where you start actually recording your own music, tell me what the response to that stuff was. Did you try to get it accepted by other bluegrass what was your expectation for that because it's pretty out there stuff even by like today's standards if you if someone tells you (laughs) this is a banjo album and you start hearing whatever's on there saxophones and and whatnot um it it can be disarming well the the first recording i did was with country cooking with pete Pete warnick had this band and and he invited me to join it yeah and it didn't have a name at that point but it became country cooking with russ marenberg and john miller and we did some recording with Kenny Kosek on fiddle. It was the first recording I was on in a very early round of record. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd written, you know, I had written these few or four, three or four songs that I sent to Bill Keith, but then I hadn't written anything like five or six years. And Pete said, Pete had a couple of original tunes on there. And I think one by David Grisman, who he knew at that point <clears throat> from New York City. And I said, I don't have a tune to write. He said, eh, write something. So I wrote this tune that I called the Hollywood Rumba which is some sort of mediocre bluegrass banjo tune. It's not terrible. I mean, it's okay, but it's you know nothing special. It's just your best stab yeah, at just, coming up with something. Exactly. Yeah. And so I put that on there, and then that started me writing tunes again. And and then oh, cool. uh, I, we did another album, and I did a tune called Kentucky Bullfight. Pete said to Rounder Records, well, you should really, Tony's written all these tunes now, and uh, he should do an album. So they let me do an album, and that's where everything got weird. Because yeah. <laughs> I was playing with this group Breakfast Special at that point with Kenny Kosek on fiddle, Andy Statman on mandolin, and this guy Stacy Phillips, who passed recently, unfortunately, uh-huh. on door, I always say doorbell, dobro, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, and just all these like-minded people, a guy named Roger Mason on bass, Jim Tolles on guitar, and we had a drummer named Richard Crooks. 
But we just did all this, you know, we were all trying to stretch the boundaries in different ways. And we're doing Hawaiian music and Jewish music and show up at festivals uh, right after the gospel sing. I remember when you're 73 or 74, following Buck White, and they did a total wonderful, beautiful gospel show. And then we we came out, the Bad Boys of Bluegrass or whatever we played. And Andy Stabman had a cassette of of, – this Jewish music, you know, klezmer music from like the 30s yeah. and on his on his cassette machine. And he just put it on the mic, which was live as we're getting set up. And you hear this wailing clarinet, you know, <laughs> and the people in the lawn chairs are going, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, what is this music? Uh, so we were all kind of thinking in the same way. So I would have like triple saxophone solos on tunes and yeah. just this weird stuff, you know. You guys probably had long hair too, didn't you? Yeah, I'm sorry to say. Yes, we had some long hair in the band. Oh, they, yeah. they, they should have known before they booked you. Yeah, must not have looked at the. Well, Carlton Haney really. Carlton Haney, who did those first festivals, liked us and would hire us. We made two phone calls in 1973, the first year we were together, and one to Carlton Haney, and he booked us on four or five festivals. Then another to this guy Jim Clark, who was not always great about paying bands, although we ended up getting all of our money from him in the end. But uh, and he booked us on four to five festivals, and it would be the entire weekend. It wasn't like these days where there's so many festivals. You play one day on one festival, travel to another festival. You just you'd be hired for the whole three days, the whole weekend. And so we had a whole summer booked with two phone calls. It was great. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's real cool. But I imagine you got some pushback about those <laughs> those early albums. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to place myself in that time when the expectations of a banjo album might have been... A little different a little, than a little they different. are today, shall yeah. we say. Yeah, I would get some kind of really scorching reviews from County Newsletter. They were like a... They put out... The, this company, County Records, had this newsletter that they put out once a month, and they'd include you know reviews on albums. And they, they were a mail-order... Bluegrass and banjo uh, hub, and mm-hmm. you know you could order from them, and all the most obscure bluegrass stuff, and I or- ordered from them all the time. But they reviewed. One. I, I don't remember anything about the review, but it was a really scurrilous review. It was like, yeah, no, it's like Bob Dylan put out this album called Self Portrait after putting all the visionary albums. It was like right after Nashville Skyline, and it was just covers of other things. And they had a crooning voice suddenly, and they had a chorus on there. Mm-hmm. And Grell Marcus, who r- wrote a lot of reviews about Dylan, said. Very famous review in Rolling Stone. What is this? Shit? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm sure people were wondering the same thing because this yeah. is sort of this very different kind of crazy New York sounding, you know, with bluegrass instruments for the most part, except for the saxophone here and there. Yeah, but just yeah, yeah played so, a little um, unconventionally. Perhaps. Yes, or you'd get you know. If you like this, if you like this kind of music, this is the kind of music you like. Like damning with faint praise, saying nothing, but you know, yeah, kind but, of a yeah. backhandedish sort of compliment. Yeah, yeah. Are there any actual playing tex- techniques that you felt like really um, 
shaped your style in those days? Like, what uh, do, you, do you remember working on anything specific that typified what what you were doing? Not really. I would do what we called bombs at the point. A lot of like you know, like a lot of pinches. You know, like really aggressive pinches. I did that a lot, and it was one thing that was sort of part of my style. But I was just, I was you know doing scruggsy things and doing. Some melodic things like Bill Keith came up with, but in slightly different ways, maybe extending that vocabulary a little bit yeah. in different and i don't I can't remember any specific licks like that but what what about your um the the drive and your overall feel for pushing the beat you're def you definitely have a very like, i don't know what the word for it is I'm tempted drive. to say aggressive, but it's not yeah. not not maliciously aggressive. <laughs> I'm trying not to maliciously be aggressive well you know um you have a lot of drive, and I mean that as a as a compliment. Well, it's very, bluegrass, it's a very, that is a good it's thing. It's a very yeah. fiery type of style. How did you how did you achieve or develop that? I think it just was a natural thing, and I think as I think it was, I was. I mean, I was very shy in in, in junior high school, and and uh, didn't date in high school at all. And I was just playing the banjo, mm-hmm. and I think it was a way for me to express myself, and you know whatever deep hidden anger was inside of me, I could get that out through the van. No. Uh, you know, just one of the things about bluegrass that's so exciting is the drive. And again, having dinner with Bill Monroe and having him play five feet away in our face, mm-hmm. just that power and that aggression. And, you know, and Bill Monroe had a tough childhood. He had to pull himself up by his bootstraps and make something of himself because his parents died. When he was young, he was cross-eyed. He was he was very shy, and he would hide under the front porch when people came to visit. Yeah. And all this. He was stuff. the youngest kid, I think. Youngest he, kid, yeah. and his, his brothers moved away, and then he was raised by his uncle Penn and whatever. And he had to have a certain amount of aggression to to make himself whole and to do something with his life, which is create bluegrass that spread around the world. So, I think that aspect of bluegrass really appealed to me. Yeah, uh, and so. Uh, that just got into my playing and just listening to Earl Scruggs. It was all the drive in the world. And then I just sort of applied it to what I was doing, which was, you know, coming out of Scruggs and Bill Keith and Don Reno and all those guys and just not trying to take it to the next step or whatever. Just it sort of naturally came out. Yeah. yeah. Natural whatever creative forces were taking hold in my brain and heart or whatever at the time. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is brought to you by our official sponsor, Deering Banjos. Since 1975, Deering has firmly established themselves as the banjo specialists, creating some of the best five-string banjos available today. Artists who use Deering Banjos include five-string legends such as Jens Kruger, Allison Brown, Ryan Cavanaugh, Terry Baucom, Eddie Agcock, Rhiannon Giddens, Mark Johnson, Tony Trishka, and many others. After being in business for over 40 years, Deering has always focused on two things, the quality of their product and their renowned customer service. Whether you have been playing all your life or just starting out on banjo, Deering offers a huge array of options at every price point, as well as truly personal customer service. Even if you don't play a Deering banjo currently, their website is still stacked with great useful information on banjo maintenance, playing tips, events, news, and more. So check out their site at DeeringBanjos.com or give them a call on their toll-free number at 800-845-7791 to discover the perfect Deering Banjo for you. And of course, tell them that the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast sent you. Do you have an actual approach to composing tunes? Like you, you played last night a tune that you composed 
two nights ago, yeah. just kind of on the spot. And I know it was a little bit cheeky because of the, the blackout nature yeah. and, and title of it. I guess for, for everyone listening, we're at, we're at Banjo Camp and there was a massive power outage. And I've been describing it to people. It's like deliverance meets walking dead. You would be <laughs> walking around in the pitch black and every once in a while a, a banjo player would emerge <laughs> out of the darkness. And so you wrote a tune and performed it the very next night. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's just fascinating that you can be as prolific with your composing. Do you have a way of disciplining yourself for that when you sit down and decide that you're going to write a tune? It, it was I had gone to bed, but there was no light, and uh, <laughs> my banjo was there. Okay, I'll just sit on the edge of my bed and write a banjo tune. Mm-hmm. And um, for some reason, I was in drop C tuning instead of. G, uh-huh. drop the fourth string down a whole step to C. And um, I'd been talking to someone earlier in the day, might have been Don Vappi perhaps, or Ryan Kavanaugh, about whole tones, which are tones that are two frets apart from each other. Yeah. And I just started doing this. I used to really like whole tones and threw those in, in banjo solos in some of these these albums that people hated because yeah. it was like really weird sounding. Yeah, yeah. So I, and I hadn't done it in years. So I, so I started out like that. Just very simple. Just moving this chord position, kind of a D position chord, but barring the fourth, the uh, across the, uh, in this case, the second fret to get the low D note there. Um Ending on C, and then I mean, should I get into this a little bit? Yeah, yeah. yeah and I, I was just messing around, and then I thought, rather than going from a C chord, I figured I'll just so it's not just going up. It's all these whole tones, and then I thought, and then by accident one time I went, I thought that's really pretty, but I still like that discord. So and that's went, mostly because it was dark that you... I couldn't see where I was going, yeah. so... <laughs> and then I went to the second and third strings, and I'll do the whole tones here. Yeah. And now how's that sound with open strings? And then I figured I'd change that one note on the first string. And then one time I accidentally pulled it off. So I threw that in there, and then, and then I went back to here. I was going to go repeat that, and I said, "Well, that's kind of boring. I'll just go to the third fret." And I'm into contrary motion, which Bill Keith used to talk to yeah, me about a lot. Yeah. So that note goes down there, there, and the second string goes up to there. And then I was going to do that, but that's discordant, which is fine. As Charles Ives said, "You have to stand up and take distance like a man." This was like. <laughs> You know, 1919. That's, that's your opportunity. Yeah, to, like to... a person would be better than man. But but and then I thought, I just did that. And that's really nice. It, it, yeah, resolves. Yeah. It's very pretty the way that resolves. And I'm not patting myself on the back. This just comes out. It's like, you know, I'm yeah. not doing this. It's just, I'm just messing around. Is that how a lot of your composing starts with just the idea that, oh, whole, t- whole tones are cool? Well, that's what I'm, this was. This, yeah. this was that. Other times it's just noodling around and stuff comes out. Putting it into different tunings can help. 
Something I've also read, and I, I want to say that this was in the context of Hill Country, mm-hmm. that when you set out to make a banjo album, you you had a list for yourself, like, well, I gotta have a a chimes song, I gotta have a detuner song. You you, you had yeah. a category for each type of banjo tune that there is, right? And you had that criteria. Yeah. Do, does that help you write to oh, almost totally. have like parameters or rules for yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, I got to write yeah. a, a blues tune. I want to have something sort of like Foggy Mountain Special that isn't Foggy Mountain Special. Uh-huh. And so E is a good blues key on the guitar. Mm-hmm. And because you have the flat is seventh, the flat third. Right. Just right there. So it, it was up here and went. Because the fifth string's kind of dicey. Yeah. But up here, with the D position up between the fourth and sixth frets, and you get that fifth string there, so I went. Uh, so I found this Discord. It yeah. made it work. It made that it's kind the, of the basic thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then cool. I found out afterward, and I recorded it, and then <clears throat> realized after the fact that my father used to play. He played piano when he wasn't teaching physics at night. He'd to unwind. He'd mm. play some piano, and he played something called the Swing and Shepherd Blues by this Canadian songwriter. And went. Yeah, and I basically rewrote yeah. the Swing and Shepherd Blues. Oh, yeah. Without realizing it. So hopefully no one's from copyright institutions. Yeah, hopefully there's a statute of limitations. Oh, that's uh, true. Good. From, I think I'm safe. I don't know. Yeah, well, we'll anyway. get some advice. Another thing I wanted to ask you is a book of yours I'm a huge fan of is the Hot Licks book. Just tons of good even if you don't end up using most of it, there are at least good exercises to open your mind a bit. How often do you hear other people playing licks out of your book? Uh, consciously, not not ever. But oh, just okay. the other day, and I don't even know if it's in that book. I think it is actually. There's, uh, there are a few lesser-known personalities in the back of that book, and sure. I gro- got them to play some licks, one of whom was this guy Pete Schwimmer, who's this really amazing banjo player who lives in Oregon these days. And he never really got out there and toured or particularly recorded. He put out a couple of cassettes in the 80s or something, but monstrous banjo player. And he had this lick, which is one of the greatest D licks of all time. And I heard it today, actually, yesterday or today. Someone, I heard them, whoa. And that was in the book. And I, and I showed one of the classes, showed that link to this improvisatory class I did today. It's another one of those contrary emotions. Contrary. Very cool lick. So, Very ear-catching. So that one I just heard. Yeah, it's interesting. So funny you should I've, ask that. I've heard a few in the wild, too, where like, oh, I, I know where he yeah. got that. So that's always fun. Yeah, I mean, it took a long time to write all these licks. You know, oh, it's incredible. There's yeah. some Scruggs licks, but then I just made up a bunch of licks in GCDNA, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. And then Happy Trom, uh, he agreed to do a recording of it, you know, homespun tape on it. 
So over two days, I recorded like 600 licks or something, just back to back to back to back. <laughs> and then I played a gig that night, and my brain was opened up so much. You know, oh, I, wow. I didn't remember yeah. a whole lot of those. Most of the licks I didn't remember. I just sort of made them up and then went on. Yeah. And, you know, I would grab a couple for myself. But mo just playing through that, it just got your brain just opened up. The in, a, in a different place. Yeah. yeah. So Crazy. Tell me about the, the instrument you have here. It's called a banjo, and it's oh, never mind. Hmm. Um, Tell me more. <laughs> it's uh, it's my quote signature model from Deering uh, Tony Trisca banjo, and it's called a Golden Clipper because it's gold plated and it's got all these bells and whistles on it, and abalone and uh, that sort of thing. And I'm really happy with it. They they put more stuff on. I didn't ask them to do the abalone; they just did that. Huh? Yeah. And I didn't even ask them to make it gold plated. It just suddenly they oh, I've got this gold plated banjo <laughs> with abalone up. on it now. Uh, it's gorgeous, and um, I wanted a radius fingerboard, which it has, and I wanted the two extra frets because Noel Pekelny had it. And yeah, that's that, the most kind of unique thing, at least uh, that I see about it. It just you know I, I tried Noel's banjo, and it's just so great having those two extra frets because you can go you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Or. Cool. Yeah. It was kind of silly, but I had someone else make me a banjo in the Czech Republic, and uh, actually before the Deerings did, mm -hmm. did this, and and I wanted the two extra frets, and then I showed up there to play with this group, Druid Trava, and uh, I got the banjo that day, the first day of this tour I was doing with Druid Trava in the Czech Republic, and the very first solo I took, it was something like... Like from the very top to the, the bottom, yeah. and I got tremendous applause for it. I thought, "This is great." You just start this high, and munch can land, and just work your all the way. You get munch applause can... every time. The ego massage will just be incomparable every oh, time man. you take a solo. So for the next two years, I just every solo started up there. No, I'm kidding. So, the, but so all these questions that I've been asking, trying to get to the essence of what it is to play like Tony Trishka. It's all ego. It's all. It's all ego. It's all ego. It's all start at the highest fret. That's all it is. And, it all comes down to that. And wiggle your finger picks around as quickly as you can. Yeah, just, that's 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 the whole answer. And just wait for the applause. <laughs> it, yeah, it's right there. Anyway, um, so I, I wanted the two extra frets, and um, I wanted an inlay that reflected my Czech background. My father's, well, my great grandfather uh, lived in a place called Liberets. It's called Liberets today in Bohemia, in, in the Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I wanted to reflect my Czech roots, and there was a guy named Alphonse Mucha, who was the, the premier Art Nouveau artist uh, from the 1880s to the 1940s. And um, so I wanted some of his designs for inlays, oh, and so they Deering did that. Yeah. And then I figured I'd just get standard kind of white pearl uh -huh. uh, inlays. But as I was leaving Deering, the Deering folks in San Diego, you know, after meeting with them to tell them what I wanted, mm -hmm. and they said, or you could have this design or this, this material, and they held up a block, a square of this stuff called Dichrolam, which is kind of psychedelic looking. Uh, and this is called Astral Sea, A-S-T-R-A-L. Yeah. It's very striking. Yeah. Yeah. And then the sunlight really, cool. really pops. Yeah. Just this totally different kind of inlay. So I'm kind of glad. Before it, before I got the banjo, I was like, really? Should I have done that? Or should I just go for the plain white inlay? But once I got it, I was like, yeah. You're, you're happy that you made, yeah, you yeah. made the right choice. Good. Yeah. Does having that fingerboard extension, it seems, I haven't completely thought through this, but it seems like it would change your setup a bit, right? You would need a... Do you need a higher bridge when you have 
No, in this case, not. On? No, this is just a standard. It's called a smile bridge, not, not to play, be a, doing a commercial for Deering, but it's really cool because all bridges up until this time were just, as far as I know, were just flat across the bottom. Mm-hmm. And when they would, in, you know, when the pressure of the strings on the bridge pushes the bridge down into the head, it creates a kind of curved indentation, even though the 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 legs of it of the bridge are all straight across. Yeah. So during, and it might have been actually Jens Kruger who thought this up. Let's just have the feet of the bridge be a slight arc, yeah. and then they'll just settle into that indentation in the head and make more contact with the head. And I put this man this bridge on. And suddenly the sound was like much bigger and richer and fuller. It was like, yeah, wow. really cool. It made a big difference. And I remember I was at Banjo Camp North when they f- gave it to me for the first time. And Alan Mundy was like 50 feet away, and I just played on it a little bit. And he just turned around and said, what is that? <laughs> he could hear the difference immediately, you know. It's so, nice to have that outside confirmation of, yeah, of what you are. Yeah, Alan Mundy, thought, yeah. of course. Yeah. So, um Anyway, that made a big difference in the sound, too. And that's just the bridge. You can put it on any banjo, but... Yeah, and those are available separately. You don't even yeah. need to... Uh, I mean, it helps if you buy a golden clipper, but... Yeah, of course it helps. If you don't want to, <laughs> you can still just buy the bridge. Yeah. What about the rest of your setup? Are you partial to any uh, picks or, or strings or tail pieces or any of this other uh, technical business? This is just the, the Deering bridge that comes with it. I have to. I like to have the tail piece up as high as possible, which is something Earl would talk about. If the tail piece is down low then the strings are coming from the tailpiece to at a greater angle to the bridge, mm-hmm. creating more pressure on the bridge so it doesn't vibrate as much. Uh, so by having the tailpiece way up, you know, you still, I mean, Earl said have it up, but, you know, still have it there so there's enough pressure on the bridge to keep it from floating around. Hold it in place. Yeah. But it just gives you a much more open kind of a sound. So, yeah. uh, And I'm not much of a setup guy. I know Mike uh, Munford is my go-to guy he's a genius yeah uh, you know it's, i don't that's not my nature to really think about that that much i can do a few things but he's he's a great player and a great i've never met anyone as good as he is yeah for setup for my taste uh anyway so and um, he subscribes to that too or uh, i think so i think so yeah i mean someone might want a different sound and ask for it not to do that but i i really as open and full a sound as you can get on the banjo, I think is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so that's it. And um, I have the head tightened to, I don't know, yeah, it's F sharp right now. Okay, so quite a, low. A little a little loose, but I like this mellow sound. You know, when I was younger, I liked a more edgy, high-pitched sound, and now I like... Like to have a I, I like it. Range if I get older, to... I like the slightly mellower sound. I want to mellow out, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. It's your retirement sound, yeah. Nice exactly. and peaceful, laid back. Yeah, and and I'm finding that. I mean, I still like playing hard driving bluegrass, but I started writing music to some Emily Dickinson poems, and and uh, I really enjoy just composing that sort of thing, which is a whole other kind of sound and. I feel like I've heard you mention that before. Did that come about because you were did you did you visit a, an historical home or yeah, something went, like that? I, I, I'm I was to invited to your story. Yeah, I was invited to do a podcast from Emily Dickinson's bedroom. Basically, someone wanted you for a podcast. I know it was bizarre. Suckers. Yes, no, someone who was one of the curators of the museum. They were trying to bring creativity back into her bedroom where she wrote all of her poems. And they were going wow. for actors and singers and poets and whatnot, and somehow my name came up. I don't even remember how. And where is this house? It's located? in Amherst, Massachusetts. Yeah. And so 
my wife wanted to come along, so she drove. She had a, she's driving a Fiat. And I figured it'd be really nice to write some music for one of her poems to play for the podcast. And so I got my banjo out, and we're driving up to Massachusetts from New Jersey, and I have the banjo like I'm, I'm <laughs> yes, holding almost car. straight up because right. there's no room in a Fiat. So, yeah. And I wrote this... Uh, I wrote this music for it and sang it on the podcast, which was really shameful. But I've done it since then <laughs> with some really good singers, so it's better. So it uh, goes something like this. Thank you. And the people I, I, I have sing that are some really wonderful singers, and they'll sing it really slowly. So you're so used to playing fast on the banjo and to go. And I wrote it a little fast. Yeah. But when I actually do it with someone singing it, sometimes doing... Rubato, More, is, that, is that what they Yeah, you call say rubato, I say rubato. You say staccato, <laughs> I say staccato. Anyway, let's call the whole thing off. Uh, yeah. And then the lyrics to it are the poem itself? The poem itself, yeah. And what's the, what's the name of the poem, did it, you say? Frequently the Woods Are Pink. I just found, you know, I was looking through a book of her poems, and I just fell upon that. I thought, what a beautiful line, frequently the woods are pink. And something, and I'm not going to remember all the words, but frequently the woods are pink. Frequently are brown, frequently the hills undress behind my native town. Off to Hennes Hill, I was wont to see where it used to be. And the earth, they tell me, on its axis turn, wonderful rotation. By but twelve performed, so it doesn't rhyme. The last line doesn't rhyme, and that's I think that's one reason. I mean, her her poems compared to anything else in that era and Walt Whitman, you can't beat. But yeah. she was really on the edge, and you, it takes a while to understand what she's writing about sometimes, and uh, and she doesn't rhyme lines, and it's just like she's really outside. She's just writing for herself. She only had something like six or ten of her poems ever published in her lifetime out of the hundreds oh. that she wrote. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Interesting. It was only many years later. And people would mess with her punctuation, and they finally found the original mm. manuscript, her original handwritten poems, and put in commas where there weren't and dashes where there were. Whatever. Yeah. Just yeah, know, yeah, messing yeah. around with it. So, I love stories like that. When you, when you get into music, you know that you have an expectation of maybe being on some stages here and there or recordings, and it's cool to... Just hear about the strange situations that you would never have been in. Yeah. But for the fact that that you have this banjo with you and and you've somehow made a name for yourself where they invite you to this really cool place. Yeah, this one happenstance, and I've written music for three other of her poems, 
And there's a, a woman I know in, near where I live in New Jersey who's a classical singer, a beautiful classical singer, she's a wonderful voice. And uh, whenever we do things, I do benefits for her for this music program she has in Ridgewood, New Jersey, to bring music into the schools. And I always have her you know, sing one of these Emily Dickinson poems. Yeah. And I'd like to get get them out there in like a more of a classical situation. Not that it has, I mean, Aaron Copeland wrote music to Aaron, uh, Emily Dickinson poems. Various people have. Huh. But I'd like to have something kind of official. And I said, how many songs would I have to have or how much music would I have to put to poems to do a thing where you could get, you know, do some sort of classical situation? She said, well, you need six. So okay, that's so a little arbitrary. So I've got four. Is so that a goal of yours? It's a goal. To, yeah, I want yeah. to write two more, and uh, I mean, I'm going to have some of these come out uh, on Apple Music and Spotify and what whatnot. I've, I've recorded a few of them already. So yeah, what a neat concept. It's really fun. I love it makes this stuff. You, it makes you think differently. Can I play you one other one? Play as much as you like. And this is there, another one of the, the Dickinson pieces. Yeah, okay. right. Something so like cool. that. Yeah, yeah. It's almost a meditative thing in a way, just because it is rubato, uh-huh. and it's just I don't know. It just makes me think differently than trying to write a banjo tune. Yeah, and putting it to these Emily Dickinson poems, and it's it's really just a great exercise learning how to do that. I love stuff like that, or I hear about. I, I really admire guys like uh, like David Byrne, for example, uses a lot. I think he did a tour with like a color guard recently, where he's yeah. writing music, and like I love just all these cross artistic collaborations. You never know what's going to come out of it. And that's, yeah, it's proving yeah. to be really cool. Yeah. So classic uh, Masters of the Five String question, what recording of yours do you think best represents your banjo playing? Wow. Yeah, that's um, a big question for you. You've, you've spanned a lot of styles and, and territory. Well, I have this album called World Turning, which is a history of the banjo. And it, it does sort of show a lot of different sides of what I do. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it starts with an African tune because that's where the banjo comes from originally. And I transcribed some playing from something called the Hallam, uh, which is this uh, Senegalese instrument. And I found some tune about this king who had died and a mighty tree has fallen. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all these beautiful similes and uh, it's a beautiful tune. Uh, and I learned the part that this Hallam player, which is a kind of a African banjo with a gourd, uh, skin I've seen an accounting. Is it pretty it's, it's, similar? It's to like that? the accounting. Okay, it's yeah, it's yeah. That, yeah. that exact sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, so I learned what this guy played. I mean, some of it. His technique was monstrous, and I don't know what tuning he was using, but I, I got the basis for some of it. Yeah. And then I was just getting into minstrel style banjo. I didn't even know that they knew what was going on in the mid 1850s, and there are these banjo books in the mid 18 mid 1800s. So I really got passionate about that because I'd known what was going on. Uh, at the turn of the century, like late 1800s, early 1900s, with this classic style banjo playing. But this pushed it back, 
and I could hear all that African music in it, and it was the complete timeline from Africa through this, excuse me, minstrel music, which was based on what these enslaved Africans were doing, yeah. you know, the music they were playing, and some combination of that and Celtic music, interestingly. So I became really passionate about Celtic this. Celtic was, uh, minstrel music was influenced by Celtic? Oh, yeah, Celtic? There, there are Celtic tunes. Devil's Dream is in this 1858 book. Oh, wow, yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> and, and the tunes that are mostly on four strings, uh, on the four strings, this guy, Joel Walker Sweeney, who supposedly invented the five-string banjo, mm-hmm. which he didn't, but he might have added the fifth string, and the fifth string not being the short string, because that's in a painting from the, 18, uh, the 1780s, in colonial Williamsburg, right. uh, it's a dance with these enslaved Africans. And um, you see a guy playing this instrument that has a, sh- a short string on the side of the neck. And it's from the 1780s, probably South Carolina, long before the whites were playing the instrument. But if anything, Joel Sweeney added the low four string. Yeah. So uh, supposedly, uh, the tunes in these books that on- are only on what we today call the first, second, third, and fifth strings are probably of African origin. And you can hear them. Uh, they have, you know, this really amazing rhythmic feel to them. Mm-hmm. And then Devil's Dream is, you know, it's it's uh, just this whole other thing, much more melodic as opposed to driving. Uh, so anyway, it, it was a combination of that. But anyway, this I'm getting way off track here, talking about the history of the banjo. No, it's in, that's very interesting. But uh, so I, I have some minstrel tunes in there, and I got someone to play Bones which they had, and uh, fiddle and tambourine. So trying to recreate that sound. Yeah. And then um, some turn-of-the-century music, which is um, the classic style. This isn't what I played on there, but... on from there. All these techniques that... Yeah. That's a whole other world. A whole of, other, of this whole other world, banjo, classic yeah. style banjo. Yeah. So I wrote a tune in that style, which I got to record with Van Dyke Parks, who was one of my big heroes who worked with Brian Wilson uh-huh. on the Smile album. <clears throat> and he wrote some lyrics for it called Banjo is the Mojo of the Day. <laughs> the, this song was called Ladies of Refinement. I had Richard Green play fiddle and Van Dyke Parks played piano on it and sang it. So it was a great honor. And then I... Uh, played a, a fiddle banjo duet with Kenny Kosek, my good friend, the fiddler Kenny Kosek from New York City, a song called Booth Shot Lincoln, which is this really cool, dark, old-time tune. And then Bluegrass, I got to record a couple of songs with Alison Krauss, and then started getting into some more outside stuff. I had a banjo uh, vibes-based uh, trio for a while doing sort of a jazzy thing with tunes I'd written. Yeah. So one of those songs there... And uh, I was in a group called Farm Report as opposed to Weather Report. Farm Report was <laughs> banjo player Richie Stearns, yeah. two banjos, bass, and drums, and did one of the songs. We did a, our version of Reuben from there, going to start a graveyard of my own. It's one of the lines that Richie sings in there. Uh, ah. And then um, I got friendly with the Violent Femmes and did a song with them. Wrote a song called Down in the Cider House with Lucy, Down in the Cider House, all night long. 
and got them to play. And Brian Ritchie, their uh, bass player, played didjeridoo on it also. And it's just kind of crazy. Wow. Yeah. Lots of things. So it's uh, all this stuff from just you know spans, early history. Uh, yeah. So that's a one thing people might check out. And then my last album. It was called Great Big World, where I started writing a bunch of lyrics. Where I wrote a song about Wild Bill Hickok, and I've got a lullaby on there with lyrics I put to it. And I started thinking, you know, I've written so many banjo tunes over the years. Let me start putting some lyrics to things that makes more things more three-dimensional. And I have this other album that I've been working on for 10 years and is done recording, and I'm finally getting the cover art done, which will come out this year for sure, uh, called World uh, sorry, called um, This Favorite Land. And it's a Civil War story that I kind of started coming up with. Uh, and there's a marching, I had Van Dyke Parks arrange uh, a march that I'd written for a brass band. So I've got eight-piece brass band on there and some string quartet and then oh. some bluegrass. And um, Very I got Jim L- John Lethgow to uh, do a spoken word thing on FDR's speech from 1938 when these Civil War veterans or Gettysburg veterans came back together. Oh, cool. So it's this whole thing, almost all lyrically written. It's like 16 tunes. And uh, anyway, it's a big, big And project. so you made it sound like you wrote a fictional story or was it your words that based on there's some historical events? basis uh, well okay. it started <clears throat> once i started writing lyrics for this great big world album i started to want to know i'm going to write a song about a riverboat gambler i don't know why i decided to do that but i did and i it was sort of a blue yodel you know <laughs> uh, Whatever, yeah. one of those sorts of things. Just dun 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 You know, it's the blues, the Jimmy Rogers blues, and I wrote some lyrics, this whole story about this riverboat gambler uh, getting, killing someone in a fight over a dance hall girl, and he gets on the steamboat, which sinks, and then he goes to the, to the uh, Outer Banks to start a life anew, and I uh, wrote this whole song about that, and then <clears throat> wrote a song about this great train robbery which Disney actually made a movie out of when I was a kid. I remember seeing that. But it was uh, about these Union spies commandeering, hijacking a Confederate train so they could cut tele- telegraph wires and could pull up the tracks and behind them as they went along and how they were captured. And so I wrote that. And then this started kind of falling together. The story kind of came together. Interweaving um, these different stories. Yeah. First yeah. it was, I'm just going to write a song about a riverboat gambler. And then I wrote this thing. And then, oh, I'm going to have some woman... In Ireland, her husband dies in a mine cave in, and she decides to come to the United States to mm. start a life anew, and she leaves her kids behind and then sends for them, and she meets this riverboat gambler on the Outer Banks, and that connects oh, them. okay. And I got Maura O'Connell to sing that song, if you're familiar with her. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And then, anyway, and the story went on, and I wrote a song about Gettysburg, and um, I got the Violent Femmes to sing a song about, like, it's from a rebel point of view, about, you know going to war with, uh, with the Union soldiers. Uh, I did a thing with them, and we were in, we were in Electric Lady Studios, as it turns out, oh, in New York yeah. City, which is pretty cool. And they were doing something from there for this radio show. And I said, hey, and they asked me to play along with them. And I said, hey, can we do this other song? And so we just did an acapella. You know, these oh, guys cool. just singing around the campfire. I mean, that kind of a so thing. So it's a bit of a concept album, it's too. A con- it, it is, yeah. if you want to call it that, just a concept album. And then I wrote a song about a gathering of surviving Union and Confederate soldiers from the Gettysburg Battle in 1863, regathering 75 years later at Gettysburg in 1938. And there's a video of these guys in their uniforms, in their 90s, many of them in their uniforms, shaking hands across the stone wall at Gettysburg that they'd fought across. And one guy goes, or something like that. And the guy standing next to him says, that's a genuine rebel yell. 
And so the whole point at the end of this whole saga, as it were, if that's not being too pretentious, is the healing at the end. These guys that fought are now shaking hands shaking across. Shaking hand uh, over the wall. Yeah. yeah. But then I wanted some sort of something about an enslaved African, and I wanted that aspect to be in there. And I went to this, um, quote, slave graveyard in Asheville that this friend of mine who's a history professor mm -hmm. was clearing of debris. And it was like a really powerful experience. A guy named George Avery was a uh, enslaved African who was a grave digger for his, his uh, enslaver uh, for the plantation. And we went to this graveyard, and there would just be a stone over where someone was buried. No inscription, just a stone. Okay, someone's buried here. Huh. And they did a seismic thing and found out that 1,900 people were buried beneath that. Oh, my. And it was just, just like, whoa, seeing this in person was just like unbelievable. It's heavy, yeah. So I, I wrote a song about this guy and, and I, based on his existence, but then I had him escape and escaped union lines. Hmm. It's, I'm sorry, I'm just going on and on about this. This it's, is really like, interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it. So all this these pieces cool. kind of came together and I wrote songs about all these... Things. And then I wrote a song about uh, that I called This Favorite Land, which is a phrase from Lincoln's, I think, second inaugural. Because, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's kind of honoring America. I love America for all the problems this country has and all the divisiveness today and uh, all the horrible things we've done. And we've done some horrible things in mm -hmm. our existence. But the nature, the, the basis of what, the essence of what America is, is still so amazing. Yeah. And I love this country. And so that's. That's why this favored land, you know, because in the end, in spite of everything, this is it is a favored land, and it's a it's a wonderful country, yeah. and so that's kind of the essence of this whole thing that <clears throat> just developed out of this just writing this riverboat gambler song. Yeah, it's a really neat, a really neat concept. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing it. Yeah. So anyway, that'll come out this year at some point. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, where can people find updates about that, or or find your tour dates, or any of that? Uh, just on my website, TonyTrishka.com, yeah. and I've got – I should mention that I have this online banjo school, the Tony Trishka School of Banjo, if I can plug oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, people can send in videos. It's not a Skype thing. It's, it goes into a queue, and then I respond to it. And uh, there are over 50 interviews with Bela Fleck and Steve Martin and Earl and Bill Monroe and Bill Emerson and Alan Mundy and on and on and on and Allison Brown, Kathy Fink, some of the folks that are here. Uh, a bunch of slackers. Yeah. A bunch of slackers all, yeah. Anyway, and over 250 lessons, three camera shoots with tablature, and you subscribe for three months, six months, or a year, and you can go on 24 hours a day yeah. anytime you want, and it's there. So anyway, that, that is out there, and that keeps me busy when I'm not on the road. So Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that insight and, and playing for us and everything. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. All right, yeah. My pleasure. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast featuring Tony Trishka. You heard three sound clips in this episode, and in the order that they appeared, it was Hollywood Rumba, performed by Country Cooking, Kentucky Bullfight, also performed by Country Cooking, and the tune called Heartlands, performed by Tony Trishka. Thank you once again to this episode's Patreon supporters, DJ Shook, Mark Schuster, and Kirsten Cole. Thank you all so much for your support. For those of you who are interested in becoming an official sponsor of the show, please go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and learn all about how you can make a small monthly donation to keep the show running. 
Contact the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on all of your podcast platforms. Follow me on all the social medias. You know the drill. Just like things, follow things, you know, all that stuff. Uh, I'm going to get to work on the next one. See you all next time.